Well, great. Um, this, this past week, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm kind of a sci-fi nerd. Uh, I really like science fiction. <laughs> it's not easy to admit that in front of people. Not everybody is super proud of being a sci-fi person. But uh, I've been wanting to read uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy for a little bit. And I actually read the first of the three this week. Ah, I was so immersed. Um, and for some of you, that sounds like torture. Because one, you don't like C.S. Lewis's fiction. And then two, you don't like aliens. So it really wouldn't have fit you well at all. But as I've been reading, it's been amazingly stimulating. And especially, it got me thinking about this week's message. Um, I want you to imagine first <clears throat> that there are curious and kind aliens. All right? For some of you, this is a stretch, but just hang in there with me. Um, secondly, imagine that in their exploration of the Milky Way, they somehow just ended up on our tiny little planet called Earth. And for some reason, unbeknownst to us, they come to the downtown campus on a Sunday morning to our gathering to explore what human beings believe and how they interact. And the only thing they have to go on is our one gathering. They're going to head out back to Mars or whatever, even though we know Mars doesn't have life ever since the last journey. They're going to head back to their planet uh, with information only from our gathering. So I wanted to ask us a question. What picture of God would they have if they were just to visit our gathering on a Sunday morning? This isn't rhetorical. This is interactive. I've been doing this more often, so I hope you're feeling more comfortable with it. Um, what picture of God do you think that they would have if they just came to our gathering on Sunday morning? Right, fun, full of love. Wow, that's great. Very good. God likes movies. <laughs> you know, that's true. He does love culture. And that's, that's it. Very true. Music. Okay, he loves music. Multicultural. Yes. Children. Yes, he loves children. Well, I'd like to, to take us on a brief journey. If, he if they just looked at our welcome folder, even, our worship guide, what picture of God would they have? And if they were just to walk through the service order, we say hence of who our God is throughout. So, and this is helpful because sometimes we just do these things without realizing uh, necessarily. I know I'm that way. I'll put it that way. You're very thoughtful people. But sometimes I just get stuck in habits and do them because they're to be done. Um, but if an alien who's never done them before comes in and sees what we're doing, they would look first and see a welcome. A welcome that invites people from all walks of life to unify their hearts towards one direction. And even the songs, the first couple songs, would highlight something different about this God. That he's holy, that he's powerful, that he's mighty. And he calls for our praise and our affirmation and our worship. And it's in this moment that we affirm his character and his goodness and what he's done on behalf of us. And then we would come to this moment of brokenness. The aliens watch us as we respond uh, with admitting our own guilt and our brokenness. Before a holy God, we realize that we aren't as different and as holy as he is, as good as he is. And so our alien friends, they continue to watch and take studious notes um, as we continue on with, with songs of affirmation. We, ha we have a strange hope when we gather together. That we're not stuck in our sins, but we've been actually washed. Our sins have been washed away. We've been forgiven. And healing comes through one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and what he's done on our behalf. And so then we see out of that, out of this affirmation of what Christ has done, 
then we can have healthy community, right? Um, God enables healthy community out of what he's done for us, and so we find all these different ways to hang out and to encourage one another in the walk together that we have as we have this community life segment. And then they notice, after all of this, the word is preached. This book is proclaimed out of. Um, There's something holy about this book that's different than any other books that will just sit and listen to it be read. And then afterwards they watch us as we listen, as we learn, as we grow in our understanding of who this God is through a time of teaching or preaching. There's something about this God that makes people want to learn more about who he is and what he's done in history. But also, as we follow along, we see a community that not only hears this story, but actually reenacts it through a meal by, by, no, you know, by, by anything else. And so through this meal, they see the gospel, this good news of what God has done in Jesus, proclaimed as, as God is caring about our whole bodies, our whole selves, all of our senses, the sight, touch, smell, sound. And he's working through all of that to proclaim the gospel to who we are. And then one of the last formal activities they see is they hear the benediction, you know. And they think, okay, what is this? And they begin to take notes because they see a God that is a a stay-with-you God, a go-with-you God, a God who blesses the rest of your work the next six days of the week. He doesn't just show up here this one day out of the week and then leave us to fend for ourselves, but he definitely encourages us and he guides us and he grows us as we gather, but then he goes with us to empower us to the places he's called us. This is the kind of God that's portrayed on these pages. And, and the reason we did this exercise really quickly is, is to show that how you worship reveals a lot of who you worship. The things you do together reveal who you worship, who you value. And this is a fundamental concept when we come to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, it's full of a bunch of really strange things, at least from our cultural perspective. But it's showing us a magnificent picture of who God is. A magnificent picture of what he demands and what humanity should look like. So with our goal to be in God's word daily through what we've called this journey of open here, we've seen last week in Exodus that God was a mighty deliverer, right? And he brought his people out of the bondage of Egypt and he guided them through the wilderness as their God and their king. And he's bringing them to the land he promised them, finally. Although they are grumbling, although they're complaining, he's still guiding them. And God, he's redeemed this people and he's made them into a nation And he's made his covenant, his promise to dwell and to be amongst his people. To tabernacle is the word. It's this portable tent-like temple. And he said he's going to have a special presence in this tabernacle. Well, today we continue the not-so, we continue the story in the not-so-frequently charted waters of Leviticus. Now, probably many of you have even asked, okay, what is the point of this book? I mean, why is it even in the canon? You know, what can I get out of this for today? You know, look... God, I've got schedules, I've got things to do. Empower me in my, you know, where, he, where you have me today. But if you look closer, it's this intimately connected picture of Leviticus and Exodus that shows a redeeming God and his purposes. As we pull back the curtain, literally, <laughs> of the temple, we see a holy and mighty and vibrant picture of our God. So just to kind of give us a quick snapshot before we dive in. Through all these rituals and these regulations and these actions that are going on in Leviticus, we see God's holiness and his other world like purity on the fore. We also see ourselves, though, right? We are still a people who fall in the muck and the mire of this fallen world. 
And we are sin-soaked rebels all the way down to our core. We need continual cleansing. We need continual mediation on our behalf. But God's determination to be with humanity, to dwell with them, to flourish with them, breeds a great creativity that has been planned before the dawn of time. And so he reveals a way, his way. It's very specific in the book of Leviticus. It's not just go and do what you want. And if ever these two opposing sides, this fallen and rebellious humanity and a holy and pure God are ever to dwell together in peace, then we as fallen, broken, and situated people need to learn one thing. To approach a holy God, we have to approach him his way. There isn't another option. To approach a holy God, we have to approach him his way. And Leviticus, it gives us this unique way. Um, It isn't paying monthly dues so you can stay a part of God's club. It isn't working hard enough that you can show that your value to the kingdom will be worthwhile. And it isn't knowing the right words to assuage or even manipulate the heart of God. What is it? It's sacrifice. Sacrifice. Costly, bloody, emotionally intense, and uncomfortably tactile sacrifice. Now, I'm not going to show any pictures up here. That could get pretty graphic. But, uh, you know, uh, all that you need to know is that it's very bloody, and I'm sure you've seen other pictures at different times, considering our family-oriented service. Um, It's a very intense situation. And this morning in Leviticus 16, we zero in on one particular day. As Beth read for us snippets of Leviticus 16, it's the day of atonement. I mean, this is the pinnacle of the sacrificial system in the Israelite culture. And it's common to call it today in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. You find this uh, within Israel, still practiced today. And looking at this monumental day of sacrifice, we're going to cut through four aspects. We're going to cut through them, these four aspects of sacrifice. The why of sacrifice, the how of sacrifice, the end of sacrifice, why don't we practice it today, and even our response to sacrifice. But before we do that, let's just spend one more moment And prayer quieting our hearts as we dig into this very intense uh, subject in a very culturally distant time. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that your word um, speaks to us as it spoke to your people in Israel. Yes, we have to do digging. Yes, we have to lean into your Holy Spirit as he unveils your scriptures, as he illuminates your word to us. But we rest in your guidance. We know that that no word of yours returns void. And it is in your scriptures on purpose. And so we seek to hear from you this morning. Teach us more about who you are, who we are, and who we are in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question we have to ask, and it's probably on every 21st century modern mind, is why would God choose such an intense, grotesque, bloody, form for his divine avenue to approach him, right? And if you haven't asked the question, you probably should, because a lot of our culture asks that question. Is God a bloodthirsty God? But when we ask this question, we have to guard our hearts, because we can come with a modern pride, or as some have called it, you know, this technical term, chronological snobbery. (laughs) We look back in time, and we think, oh, look, you know, we not only look back, but we look down our noses, 
at those, and we say, oh, if they only would have known how much we know today, they never would have done those grotesque actions. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And if we're honest with ourselves, is anyone in here really to say, <laughs> is willing to say that our culture is better than cultures in the past? I don't know if anybody, anyone in here can really say that with honesty. You see, sacrifice, it was really common in most cultures throughout history. And uh, there are two common reasons why in ancient times, and actually still today in many cultures around the world, that sacrifice is practiced. The first goal was to manipulate fate by seeing into the future. With, with what it was called extispacy. You know, so that's a hard one. Try to say that one two times, or even three times fast. I mean, that's a hard word. Extispacy. What they would do, and this was kind of like a list science, is they would take the innards of an animal, whether it be the, li- the liver or the entrails, and they would look for these different abnormalities. So if it had a yellowish formation, and they went into battle, and they lost, then they would say, okay, when you find a yellowish formation in the innards of an animal... That means loss. So next time, when we find this yellowish formation, we're not going to go to battle because that's a sign from the gods that we're going to lose. Trying to manipulate, see into the future on what God had for them. The second more common goal of sacrifice was to manipulate the gods by luring them with food, right? How they worshipped showed who they worshipped. For them, their gods were much like human beings. They had these selfish desires and ambitions, and they were driven by twisted purposes. And it, it, was, it was as though you, were, you would go up to the God and say, if you were a good boy, afterwards I'm going to bring you out some ice cream. You know, it's, it's very degrading to who God is. And, and then the God would secretly put these minerals back in the food so that, you know, it never was actually disappeared, but these special minerals got infused, you know, HGH or something. And they would eat the meat, and out of that you have the best soul food imaginable. I mean, this is supposed to be good and nourishing for the, for the priest, you know. So the underlying purpose in both of these most common goals for sacrifice was to give power to humanity over the gods. It was all about taking power and manipulating the gods to bring about your purposes and desires. But in God's word, we see a very different purpose for sacrifice. God's too smart to be manipulated and his ways are too hidden to be hijacked by some entrails form of list science called extispacy. I said it again. I'm working. I, I didn't think I was going to say it right, so I'm pretty, pump, pretty pumped. Rather, we see, you know, we see a creator God who brings and creates humanity to manage his garden as these kind of vice regents underneath his rule to bring about his good flourishing in all of creation. And he creates humanity to bring about his purposes because he knows what's best for what he has designed. But rather, humanity has the penalty that expressed because they've they've transgressed God's given boundaries and rebellion against their king of the universe when they choose to say, no longer will I manage your creation the way you've designed it, but I will manage it the way I see best. The same penalty countries use today for treason is the same penalty the scriptures use for treason against the king of the universe, death. That is the penalty for all of humanity who disobeys and disregards the great God. This isn't a democracy where we vote what is best. God is king, we are not. He is God, we are human beings, and we are to obey his rule. To go against the word of the king is like saying he is not the rightful ruler. And God and his kingdom will not stand for this sort of treason. He has every right in his goodness and his perfectness and in his holiness to, ma- to demand just return, to demand a just penalty. 
Therefore, sacrifice. Why is sacrifice needed? Because God is a just God. He's, his just nature will not allow destruction and evil to go unpunished. I mean, who here in here really would like a God who lets injustice reign? Who lets lustful greed take over? Nobody wants a God who just sits back and lets that destroy our environment. God can see what sin does to people way before we have any idea on how it's destroying our lives and the ones that we love. And so God's wrath, his justice portrayed, can be explained as his gracious and settled opposition to the cancer of sin that is destroying his good word, good world. And since God hates pain and he hates destruction and the thing that causes it, a.k.a. sin, God's forgiveness requires a payment or he is no longer just. So God, he made a sacrifice. He, he institutes sacrifice, the way to approach him, because he is also a just, I mean, a merciful God. He, he's a just God, but he's also a merciful God. He's provided a way for justice to be satisfied while still showing mercy to his creatures. As one has once said, for mercy without justice is the mother of disillusion, but justice without mercy is cruelty. But how does this work? So we get that, that God is just and we get he's merciful and he's instituted a way, but, but how? How does sacrifice work? And this is one of the concepts, this one particular concept is key to sacrifice and is found all over scripture. We heard it repeated multiple in the text that was read for us this morning. It's the word atonement. Atonement. It's key to us as Christians. It's key to us as understanding how God's justice and his mercy intersect for the good of his people the basic idea of atonement is that an innocent life is substituted in to take the penalty for a guilty one and therefore fulfilling the requirements of justice. So in sacrifice, the innocent and spotless animal, his blood is shed, death comes upon him and steps in the place of a guilty person and takes the punishment upon itself for the lawbreaker that which deserved it. So in Leviticus 16, we're actually to the text now. In Leviticus 16, we zoom in on one day of worship, like we said, where all these actions of rebellion of Israel against God are atoned for. They're paid for. The worst sins imaginable, they have a particular term. And it only shows up twice here in Leviticus. It's called transgressions. It's the high hand. It's staring God right in the face and in bold defiance, spitting in his face. That's the kind of rebellion that is being talked about. That's the kind of utter brokenness and defiance and treason that this day of atonement is covering. Only in chapter 16, in all of Leviticus, does this word show up twice. And it's on this day of atonement that God wipes clean all his people's sins of the past so that when he looks upon Israel, he sees his bride as spotless, as clean, and the relationship reunified without any hindrance of filth. Well, when we jump into Leviticus 16, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to begin in verse 1. Um, not all of it is printed in your worship guide because it's, quite a, it's a little bit longer and we're not going to hit every single verse. Um, but we see that, for one, that, that for God there is no small sins. Even though we're talking about the most intense form here, for God there is no small rebellion. Verse 1 reads... 
The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. God's presence, His holy presence is intense. And this is referring, this particular verse 1 is referring to a, a particular time in chapter 10 of Leviticus. These two guys, Nadab and Abihu, these brothers and the sons of Aaron, they did not follow God's specific ways when it came to what kind of incense to burn in the tabernacle. I mean, we're talking incense. This isn't very intense. This isn't something that we would say, okay, this is ridiculous. I can't believe you burned incense, you know? Like, this is incense. But God had clearly laid out what kind of incense, the the particular uh, formulation of that incense back in Exodus. And it showed a level of arrogance of these two men to just totally disregard the guidance of God to make their own kind of incense. I think this one smells a little better. Or whatever their reasoning was. To approach a holy God, we have to approach him his way. So fire comes from the presence of the holiest, holy of holies, and it actually consumes these two guys, making them some crispy critters. And we have the audacity at times to say that our sins are small when these two guys were set aflame for mixing the wrong kind of incense. God's holy justice doesn't play favorites with people or particular sins. It demands that all sin, both private and public, both local and widespread, be punished. This is the holiness of God on display. And so God's mercy, it makes a way of forgiveness here. But it has to be carried out, like we've said, according to his way. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place, so don't just come nonchalantly, and said inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. This way, God's way. I mean, it's kind of hard to picture what's going on here without, well, some pictures. And so we've got a couple uh, that that help lay out the land of the tabernacle and some drawn examples of what it might look like. Maybe. There we go. So you see out here you have this outer uh, section um, for the tabernacle, and then you've got the inner holy place and the holy of holies. This is holy ground. They had to take certain precautions before they could even come into the outer court. And we're going to zoom in. Ooh, that was pretty cool. So you zoom in and you have the holy place where you would have to sacrifice before you came in. But the holy of holies, it's, it's the way that the, the Hebrew puts it, it's the holiest place. It's where God's presence is most concentrated before his people. The, whole, the high priest can only come in there once a year. And he has all these certain precautions and he has to take. Otherwise, as Nadab and Abihu, they're going to be crispy critters. And so Aaron, if he doesn't want to die, he's going to have to listen really careful these particular instructions before he comes into this intense dwelling of God amongst his people. So, if we look at the actions, if we look at the actions of the high priest on this monumental day, we see what God does for us through atonement. Okay? First, atonement is God's way to cover sin and to cleanse us. The first sacrifice is death by a substitute. Because Aaron was also stained with his own sin, he would have to sacrifice a bull for him and his family. 
because he had to take care of his own sin before he could mediate for the people. But then he was to sacrifice a male goat, for whatever reason, male goats within the Levitical structure signified a more intense style of sin rather than female goats, just as you're reading this week. That might be helpful. <clears throat> and and, and the, he would sacrifice a male goat to cleanse the people's stain of rebellion. Look with me at verse 15 of chapter 16. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, there's that key word, the highest form of rebellion, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the goat, the goat Aaron would kill was to, uh, was to stand in a substitute as a substitute for the people and the blood he would sprinkle on the mercy seat and cover the sins of the people. So if we go back, the mercy seat is this altar that's in there. It contained uh, the Ten Commandments on the stones. It also ca- contained Aaron's staff with a, a flower bud on the end and also a jar with uh, a piece of manna in it. And on this top, you see two cherubim. Well, you barely see them. They're very foggy in this picture. But they come together. And the mercy seat is right there where those two cherubim meet. It was meant to symbolize the throne of God where he sat and ruled the nation of Israel through his prophet Moses. Well, in this time, this goat's death was to take the place of the people's death. It was a substitute, one for one, kind of. You know. um, God's justice, it has to be satisfied. It has to be satisfied. But he allows a substitute in his grace to take the punishment for their outright actions of rebellion, their spit in God's face, their defiance. I don't know how many of you remember using whiteout. (laughs) Uh, You know, for life's big screw-ups, liquid cover-up, you know. Um, I wonder wonder how actually whiteout is doing since typewriters have kind of gone (laughs) out of... of, uh, out of fashion or just out of technology, however you say that. But, but do you remember how when you would make a mistake, I had to do typing class in eighth grade on a typewriter and we had computer lab right next door and that always frustrated me, but it's just the way it worked, you know, so you didn't cheat, right? Um, but I remember you would make a mistake, you'd have to wind it out, get your white out and dab it on the paper so you didn't have to trash the whole paper. That's what you had to do with a typewriter. You would cover over the mistake so that the paper could be saved. That's a pretty good analogy. Connects pretty well. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of what the goat is, is doing here. The sin, the blood that is shed, is actually covering over the sins of the people. The error that would have kept them from relationship with God has been fixed, and the people have been saved. Atonement means the people's errors have been covered by the blood of a substitute, and they've been made clean. So atonement is God's way to cover Uh, sin and cleanse us, but atonement is also God's way to remove sin and satisfy his justice. The second sacrifice is actually a banishment by a representative, okay? Not not our representatives. Whenever you hear that, it's like, oh, what representative, you know, in Congress? Um, But rather, Aaron was to take a second goat, and by placing his hands on the goat, God would place all the sins of the people on this animal as a representative of Israel. This was a very tactile thing. It was saying that all our sins as a nation are now being placed on this one 
poor little goat. Then they would have a runner who would take the goat into the wilderness and leave it there never to return. If you look with me to verse 20 of chapter 16, we see this being described. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Once again, that word transgression popped up. That's the second time. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Some of our translations, I think we need to talk about this just quickly as you read it later on this week. Some of our translations in uh, verse 10 actually say that they're sending the goat to uh, some, some uh, figure called Azazel. Um, whereas some of our NIV translations have scapegoat. Scholars wrestle around a lot with what's going on there exactly. There's different ideas. I'd love to talk with you afterwards, but it could be a long discussion. But what we do know, what we do know about this is that the sins of the people, all their guilt, all their shame, was placed on this one goat. And as the people watched the goat escorted out of the camp, they watched as their guilt and shame left with it. No longer to bear it on themselves. It left the camp for good. Never to return. And there's actually an excerpt in the Mishnah that captures this moment. And it talks about the young runner who is to take the goat would actually try to find a cliff. <laughs> to throw the goat over the cliff so that the sin never returned to the camp. Because what happens if the goat that was supposed to be banished happens to end up back in your tent, you know? Ah! You know, my guilt has returned! Um, and so there's humor there in the Mishnah about that. And, and, and one thing that, that's sim- similar in our everyday lives that captures a similar picture is trash day. Now, this is a pretty intense moment for this lady. But we all have trash companies who come one day a week and pick up our garbage, never to be seen again. Imagine if it was all left there, like this lady. How that would hinder our relationships. It would cause disease to break out because of our garbage spreading throughout humanity. It would also in, in, in hinder uh, conversations and city flourishing because nobody wants to be around garbage. So it breaks apart community. This is a great example of sin. And instead, our junk, the stuff that sinks, stinks up our lives, the stuff that's broken, the stuff that's like spoiled milk, those worthless things, they're transferred to a garbage truck and they're disposed by really helpful guys and gals who clean up our cities. Never to be seen again. Our junk is transferred and then disposed. Now we do need to have thoughtful presence about how we're going to deal with our garbage, yes. But in terms of the Day of Atonement, it was like one major trash day where all the junk of the Israelites' lives were transferred to this one goat. All their guilt, all their shame, the worst sins imaginable, the transgressions, they're gone. Out to wander into an oblivion away from God's people in the wilderness. This is why the psalmist says that God has removed his sins as far as the east is from the West. He's picturing the Day of Atonement here, how his sin has been covered and then also banished, no longer to wear heavy on his bird, weigh heavy on his shoulders. And in verse 30 of chapter 16 in Leviticus, we see, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. 
And these actions were to be done once a year, every year, for all the sins of the people. It had to be repeated. This was not a once-for-all deal. To atone for those sins that were so heinous that no other sacrifice would do. And imagine, if you happen to, I mean, you probably didn't care at that point, but imagine the day after the Day of Atonement and you happen to commit a transgression. That's a long time to wait and to wear that burden because it only happened once a year and it only was paid for once a year in the Levitical priesthood system for Israel. But God, he never intended for it to be like this forever. This isn't the way he intended it for his people to sustain. He was giving his people bulls and goats as signposts of a new and better way that was to come. One sacrifice that would make all of these sacrifices obsolete. That would take all the same messages, all the same deals that it's trying to accomplish, and these sacrifices would be accomplished in one. And I like what John Stott says, one particular theologian. He says, Although the sin offering and the scapegoat, both in their different ways, had a sin-bearing role, at least the more spiritually-minded Israelites must have realized that an animal cannot be a satisfactory substitute for a human being. So in the famous servant songs that we find in Isaiah, like Isaiah 53, the prophet began to delineate one whose mission would embrace the nations and who, in order to fulfill it, would need to suffer, bear bear sin, and die. Even in Isaiah, they began to see the breakdown of the sacrificial system, that it was pointing to something greater. And God provides a new and better sacrifice. An end to sacrifice. Rather than looking to an animal and an altar forever, we're called to look to a person and a cross. One who brought an end to sacrifice through his own sacrifice. The blood of this sacrifice, it's flowing throughout the pages of the New Testament. And his name is Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as it says in the Gospel of John. Well, Jesus... He's the new and better high priest that we see in Hebrews chapter 9. In verse 7, it writes of Aaron, But into the holy of holies only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But then it speaks of Jesus in verse 12. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of his own blood, or not by means of, uh, of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He's the new and better high priest. And he's also the new and better substitute and scapegoat that bore our sin. Look at 1 Peter 2.21. He himself bore our sins. This is the language of a scapegoat. In his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The concept, I'm going to quote John Stott here again because he does such a great job with atonement and understanding. He says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both salvation and sin. How so? For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. This is our God. He's the new and better substitute, the new and better scapegoat that bore our sin. 
And also Jesus is the new and better sacrifice. 1 John 2.2, 2. he is the propitiation, or he, he uh, diverts the wrath of God, is what we saw in the sacrifice. He, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Jesus is the new and final atonement. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, the writer says, For Christ has entered not, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So it is that Jesus is the only way. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To approach a holy God, we must approach him his way. And here God makes a way by becoming man, dying our death and bearing our sin to make an atonement for our sin once and for all who are called his own. Justice is satisfied and mercy is released to those who call upon the name of Jesus. So how do we respond to such a sacrifice? Well, three ways. Three ways. First, with a contrite heart. With a contrite heart. If you look to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 31, you see that the Day of Atonement is something that stops the whole workflow of the Israelite community. They were to go as far as fasting. That's what that word in some of our translations, afflict yourselves, that's what that means. They would fast, they would stop their work, and they would reflect. And they would intentionally take note of what God was doing on their behalf on that day. On this day, they would pause to think about the impurity of their own nation, which would then highlight the mercy of God in that moment. Well, the cross, folks, should also cause us to pause and see the seriousness of our own sin to the lengths that God had to take to cover it for us. It should bring us to a lifestyle of contrition, of repentance, preaching the sin-hating good news of the gospel to ourselves daily. Well, not only should we respond with a contrite heart, but with complete rest, with complete rest. Where are the Israelites on the Day of Atonement? They're not there with Aaron. They're at home. They're actually purposely at home. Aaron is doing all of this for them at the time. He did it for all the nation every year. And where were we when Christ went to the cross? Against him as enemies. He went to the cross once and for all. And this is something we have to acknowledge is done for us so we can rest into it. Quiet the restlessness of your guilt that's constantly trying to justify your own existence. God has justified you through the cross of Christ so you can rest in everything has been washed clean in Christ. So you come, yes, with a contrite heart, yes, with complete rest, or you respond with complete rest, and you also respond with confident humility. Sounds kind of as a, as a paradox, and it's meant to be. Because, yes, God has made a way that humanity can dwell with and worship our great God, but he is still a holy God. So we come with humility that he is God and we are not, but we come with confidence. Because even on the Day of Atonement, Aaron no longer needs to fear death, right? 
if he comes before God his way. And this was a great comfort in Leviticus 16. Aaron doesn't have to fear, so he does not die if he comes into the Holy of Holies God's way and in God's timing. God made a way for life to be before him through sacrifice. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we can now come, as it says, boldly before the throne of grace because of what Christ has done for us. We now get to come into the Holy of Holies because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, tabernacles within us. And the, and the God of the universe dwells within us and we can come boldly before him and his throne. God has made a lo- way for life to be before him and in him in Christ. It's with this reflection, it's with this rest, it's with this confidence that we remember the sacrifices of old and how they pointed to the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus, our great sacrifice. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning and we rest in the beauty of the cross. Yes, it's emotionally intense. Yes, it's bloody. Yes, it is costly. But your justice demands satisfaction. And your mercy is overflowing. And so, to make a way, you sent your son Jesus. May we see our sin through the lens of your death on our behalf, Jesus. May we learn to rest in what you have done for us, Jesus. And may we, by the blood of Jesus, come confident before your throne and utter humility at the same time before you, our great God and Father. May you be glorified. And may we come and approach you your way. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.